Well, tonight we're going to uh, worship our God, who's a great God, who's worthy of our praise. So I invite you to stand and let's worship him. King is in the room. 
time, foundations of the earth and sky. You saw it all and said that it was good. The joy was set before your eyes. You knew that you would give your life. You saw it all and said that it was good. Behold, behold, the one of love has come. Behold, behold, the one of he has come. The heavens ward, the earth stood still. His final breath, he tore the veil.
Jesus, thank you for coming. God, thank you for sending Jesus to be the one that would be with us all the time. And as we're going to be looking in your word tonight, God, we thank you that the one who set aside the privileges of heaven and came of his own free will, you gave him back his kingship. And Jesus, you rule and you reign even to this day and forevermore. So we we worship you as the God who is with us, who is intricately involved in every aspect of our lives. We bow at your feet and we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And we love you this evening. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Begin the study of Hebrews. It will take us a, a few weeks to be able to kind of work through this passage. I want to encourage you to uh, think about who you're going to invite. Maybe on Sundays and, and especially on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, bringing the family out. Christmas Eve is super special around here. We do a candlelight service and we have a big um, food spread of hors d'oeuvres and those kinds of things. It's really a good, great way to start your Christmas Eve events. We'll meet at 4 and then um, we'll be down about like 5, 5.10-ish, thereabouts. And, and it's really a good time to be able to launch that, that whole celebration. As we pick up in the book of Hebrews, one of the key elements that we have to understand with this, this letter is it is imperative to be able to move forward and not trust in the old things and the old, uh, the old religious elements that were there. Hebrews 6.1 is kind of a key passage. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. As we take a look at this letter, this epistle is one of the richest constructed letters in the New Testament. It is so full of theology soteriology, Christology, the, the sovereignty of who Jesus is, uh, the preeminence, the supremacy of who Jesus is. Calvin once said this, There is indeed no book in the Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, so splendidly extols the power and the worth of that unique sacrifice which he offered by his death, deals more adequately with the use and also the abrogation of ceremonies. In short, it explains more fully that Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Now imagine these Jewish believers, and in, in, in the context of, of what's going on, these believers, they were struggling in their faith. The writer of Hebrews is delivering these truths not necessarily new truths to them, but he's expounding on these truths in order to convince them not to return back to their, the old ceremonial law. They were struggling because of, of faith in the new covenant, and, and they were so embedded in the Old 
Testament, the Old Covenant law, the old sacrifice and the old system. And they've had it for generations upon generations upon generations that when the new covenant came, they were really having a hard time embracing it. And, and we don't like things that are new, especially the older you get, you don't like new things. And, and for them, they were really struggling with this, this new covenant. And would it deliver? Would it deliver in faith? Was it secure enough for them to be able to be spiritually secure in this new covenant? They had history in the old covenant. They knew it. They were comfortable. But this, this, this as we should say, newfangled religion of Jesus, they were trying to figure out what it was all about. They were very comfortable in their old worship style. In the Old Covenant, the old sacrifice, the priesthood, and all of these things. They wanted to return back to these things. Mostly because they were conflicted in faith. And when we get in conflict, we go back to what we're comfortable with. We go back to our safety net, to our safety zone. And so they were questioning whether or not they should trust this. And the writer very carefully breaks down the reasons why the old is not adequate anymore. That the new had come to fulfill what the old had promised. And it was faith in Jesus. And he warns him against returning to old forms of faith. I had a friend, have a friend, that had come out of Catholicism. And he, he was born again, come out of a history deep in, in, into Catholicism and all of these things. And went through a series of crises within his life and difficulties. And at one point he walked away from the Lord. Actually, he walked away from the Lord multiple times. But at one point he, he said, you know, i got to go back to the ritual of Catholicism. And, and he did. He went, he went back to it and that didn't do it for him. And it was very difficult because he wasn't really embracing the new work of the Holy Spirit that was going on in his life. And as Christians, we have to be super careful that, that we do not trust in, in old-time religion, but we trust in the work of the Spirit and what God is doing in our lives today. These, these forms of faith that are never meant to save. It's the Spirit of the living God that saves. And the indwelling of the Spirit that saves. And so there's these challenges that are there. So we're going to go over an introduction in chapter 1 tonight, taking a look at it. And then we'll pick up in chapter 2 through uh, probably chapter 4 the following week, next week. One of the things that's different about the book of Hebrews is it's unlike any of the other epistles. Normally an epistle, which is a fancy word for letter, has an author and who it's being sent to and all of these things within this. This letter opens up abruptly without a normal introduction with this. There's been a lot of discussions and theories as a result of that. Most letters in the New Testament, when you look at them, the author is proclaimed right up front, or you could go to the back of the letter and you can see, well, you know, Paul would say, I wrote this with my own hands. Hebrews is not like that. And so what ended up happening, and it has happened with the book of Hebrews, is everybody's like, well, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? It's important for me to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Well, what's more important than the, knowing who the author is, the human author? We know who the spiritual author is, don't we? 
And who is the spiritual author behind the book of Hebrews? God, the whole, through the Holy Spirit within this. But a lot of people, they, they want to try to figure it out. And there's a lot of Pauline influence that's within Hebrews. So a lot of people say, well, Paul wrote it. Um, the, the language in Hebrews, as it's written, is, is very high level. So it's thought that it was written by a high level scholar that would have graduated from the Alexandrian school um, it, it, within this. Some people think if it wasn't Paul, then maybe it was Barnabas that wrote it. Others say, well, maybe Luke wrote it, or Clement, or Mark, or Titus, or Sylvanius, or Aquila. There's a lot of evidence that, and, and scholarly evidence that says that possibly Apollos had written it. Uh, one of the things, when you take a look at this, you look at the style of the writing that is there. Apollos belonged to the Alexandrian school. He was a Jew. He was a Hellenist. Uh, he was famed with his eloquence and use of scripture and history. Uh, we know that uh, Apollos was a friend of Timothy, and he had authority in many of the churches that were there, especially within the Jewish churches with, within that. Um, he was an independent teacher of Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.6. So could it be Apollos? Sure. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? Nope. No, it doesn't. Because we've got to listen to what the Holy Spirit teaches. And we've got to listen to the, the understanding of the inspiration that is there. John MacArthur said this about the authorship of this letter. He says this, As to the exact human authorship, I stand with one of the great teachers of the early church by the name of Origen. He simply said, no one knows. And he left it at that. So we'll just leave it at that. But I think the whole purpose and, and the uniqueness about this is when you see how the Holy Spirit orchestrated, the whole theme behind the book of Hebrews is all about exalting Christ. Now think about this. If the theme of the book is to exalt Christ, especially within the lives of the Jewish believers, and the author remains anonymous within this, then who shines forth? Christ. And so, I think it's appropriate that the author left his name off of it. Because he wanted to make it all about Jesus. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we really want? We want to make it all about Jesus within this. Because we don't know the authorship, we really don't know the date or the place, and it's really difficult. Um, there's a lot that internally that, that doesn't tell us what it is externally. We know that this epistle was quoted by Clement of Rome. Um, and that it had to be completed at least by 95 A.D. Internally, we know that the epistle has to do, it, it happened after the ascension of Jesus, so we know that it's after 35. We know that it happened prior to the destruction of the temple, prior to 70 A.D., uh, because of the sacrifices that are there and the priests that are there. We know that Jesus is seen as ascended in heaven within this. And we know that, that if Paul had written it, Timothy probably would have joined him within this. So, best guess, 68, 69 AD-ish. But again, does it really matter? At the end of the day, no. Other than what we can glean from this is there's an awful lot going on with the persecution of the Jewish believers that are there. 
So the persecution was in full swing at this time. And again, we don't know the, the location with, with where it was written. The background, though, is important. We know that based on, on the background of what's going on within this, there was a lot of persecution. Apollos, if he was the writer of it, most probably wrote it from the Lycus Valley, which is where Colossae is from. We went to Turkey a, a few years ago, well, probably a year and a half ago. We went through Lycos Valley. We were, we were down through that area within that. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of believers that were in that area um, that were growing. We also know that there was other groups that were supporting Christians throughout the area, especially the Jewish believers. They were giving great financial support within that. So the church was really thriving in, in the Asia area. We know that the Jewish believers were being persecuted in in Jerusalem, we know that there was struggle all over the, over the land. It's amazing how history repeats itself, isn't it? Don't we see the Jews struggling today and needing support within this? They were under social pressure, political pressure, these, these things that were going. One of the things that is found is that there was a, a rise in what we would call sectarian faith. Understanding the concept, and it's important in laying this out, these Jewish Hebrews were Jews first, or these Jewish Christians, they were Jews first by society, by religious practices that had become believers in Christ. In the Jewish culture, and Lord willing, if we get to go to Israel here in March, those that are on the trip are going to see this. Judaism and, and the Jewish faith is much more than just what our Western culture is. It is a lifestyle. It embraces everything about the person within that. So, becoming a believer and, and converting to Christianity, you're not really leaving a lot of your Jewish practice. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus practiced all of the, the, the ceremonies and the different things that he did. So, within this, and so there was a struggle. The, the struggle is... Falling back to your cultural roots and abandoning your faith. Falling, sliding back and trusting back in these roots. And again, that's a challenge. So Hebrews is really this contrast between coming to faith and having this new spiritual experience, being born again, walking with God, and then when difficulties happen, sliding back into what was kind of culturally, spiritually comfortable and trusting in that more than Christ. And so the arguments that are listed in this book of Hebrews are very well written in such a way that they argue the points why Jesus is better than what? Everything. And he's going to tear apart all of these things. These, he wants these Christian Jews... Um, not to revert back to a form of Judaism, but to continue to follow Christ. And so that, that really is the key element. And what does that mean for us Gentiles today? Really the same thing. There are two words that you need to know. Supremacy and preeminence. Supremacy. Jesus is supreme over everything. In other words, put Jesus first. Seek Him first. Follow after Him. 
the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus. Understanding that Jesus was before any human religious system existed. And being able to trust in Him in that manner. And so understanding that, that Christology in, in within this is a, is a huge deal to be able to work through this. You're going to see in chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 7, <clears throat> all the way through chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, 11, where Jesus is better than. It, it, it's a topic that comes around over and over and over. You're going to see Jesus having finished his work within this. He is the completion of our salvation within this. We're going to see him as the high priest who provides a better offering. We're going to see all of these truths that are in this letter to be encouraged. We're going to see the throne of grace, which is a place that we want to visit. How often? Every day. We want to be able to come to that. We're going to see the encouragement to press on, not to give up, not to quit. We're going to see a call to hold fast to our confession. In, in chapter 10, verse 23, we'll hammer that really well. We're going to see the encouragement to stimulate or provoke one another into faith. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And in this day and age where there are so many people that are abandoning their faith and abandoning fellowship, shouldn't we do that now? What we're seeing happen here in the book of Hebrews, we're also seeing happening in our churches today. Difficulties happen in, a, in the, the Christian's life. And what ends up happening as a result of that difficulty or that trial is that that Christian says, God, you didn't perform the way that I thought you should, so I'm going to go back to my old life. God, you didn't do what I thought you should do, so I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to stop praying. Do you know people like that? There's nothing new under the sun. And so a lot of the principles that we'll see in Hebrews will apply for us even today within that. And ultimately, it's really having that right attitude to encourage one another. So we're going to dive right in. We're going to, we're going to take on chapter 1. Um, and, and chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4 really is all about the preeminence of Jesus. So let's get right into it. Verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he had made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Oppose all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have these, these first words that are in here, and it jumps right in. In this letter, the first words you see, God, after he's spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many different ways within this. He's really bringing out this fact that God is a God who speaks. Does God want to speak to you? Yes. God has always wanted to speak to mankind. God has always wanted to have a conversation with it. When was the first time that God had a conversation with mankind? Can you remember? I know you weren't there, but in the garden. Wasn't God having conversation with Adam and Eve in the garden? Absolutely, we think about this. And so one of the things that we've got to understand is that, that there are two systems, and the old system of faith 
God's communication was strictly based on the prophets. It was, it was based on, on, on small snippets of information that was there. It wasn't originally like that. Originally, God was having fellowship with Adam and Eve and having a face-to-face conversation with them. Until what happened? Sin. They fell. Do you remember the words of God to Adam and Eve when he came to the garden after the fall? He said, Adam, where are you? Now, <laughs> did God lose Adam? Like, Dang it, Gabriel, I lost Adam again. Did he lose him? No. They were separated. What separated them? Sin. Sin separates us from God within this. And so God was there. So the author writes and he says, look it. God has always wanted to communicate. But God has provided a better way to communicate than he used to within this. In the past, it was this this short the information, these snippets through the prophets, it was kind of a need to know. It was mostly indirect with him, with with mankind, and, and when the fellowship was broken, it was there. And we think about this. Can you imagine what it would be like in your mind's eye if there was no separation between you and God and you can speak to God face to face? You ever thought about that? We have no concept of what that would be. Why? Because we have no clue. We have to, at this point, have a mediator. We have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to be in that place. Why? Our sins are forgiven, but we're separated still because we're in this flesh. But there's a time when you shed all of this and you're going to see God as He is. In Spirit. You're going to see Jesus within this. But if you could see God face to face and His glory and have clear communication... Without limitation, that would be amazing. Adam had that. There are certain things I want to slap Adam alongside the head for. Like, you really messed up within this. But we think about that. And, and the sin that separates us in our relationship when he fell. Did God stop talking? No. Did God have to choose a different means and mode by which he would talk. Yes. Because sin separated God from man. God would speak only to certain people at certain times the information that was necessary to the, to the prophets within this. Hosea chapter 12 verse 10 says this, I've also spoken to the prophets and I've given numerous visions and through the prophets and given parables. These little snippets, these, this limited information that was there. And all of that was, was so that God could reveal specific information for specific times or epochs in Israel's life and even within the world's life today. We see that. God was speaking through the prophets, but God also spoke through creation. It's called general revelation. There are two revelations of God. There's general revelation and then there's special revelation. The general revelation is all of creation speaks about the glory of God. Special revelation or specific revelation is that which God does through the Holy Spirit to the believer within this. 
Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hand. As God reveals Himself through general revelation, you sit and you look at this and you go, Yeah, there is a Creator. There is a God that's far above all of this. And you see the stars. You, you know, I've had a chance this last month to, to get out in the middle of nowheres. And it's really cool when you get out in the middle of nowhere and there's no city lights and no light pollution and there's no moon. And you look up. Have you ever been out when there's been no moon and it's just clear as day and you can see the stars and it's almost multidimensional like you, could, you feel like you can touch it. And we saw some stars in, in Eastern Oregon that had red and blue and all of these different colors. We got the spotting scope out. We looked at this. And, and it just, it's amazing. Very creation declares the glory of God, which draws us into communication with Him. God would speak through earthquakes, through floods. God would speak through famines. When God would speak in the Old Testament, He would speak through means in order, mostly, discipline. You see it a lot within this. Correcting Israel and mankind within this. And the whole First Testament is a series of fragmented conversations to do what? To reveal God's glory, God's power, and God's judgment to reveal that to, his, to mankind so that they would see that there is a God. That they would repent. It would reveal through the patriarchs, through the prophets. He would reveal himself through the law. What is revealed about God? What does God say about himself through the law? That he's the one and only God. That he's holy. He won't tolerate sin and sin will be judged. In this. And so we have this whole Old Testament that's put together. But that's all that they had until the New Testament came. Until this. And you think about the readers of this book of Hebrews. All they had was the Old Testament. They had the Septuagint. They had the Talmud, the Tanuk. They had all of these old things, but the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so in turmoil and difficulties, what were they wanting to lean back to? the Old Testament, to the sacred writings, the history and such. And God was still speaking to man in the New Testament with this question. Is God speaking to man today? Yeah. How? Have you heard the voice of God? You should. What is the primary way that God speaks to mankind today? Primary. Through the Word. Who brings the word forth and interprets it for us? The Holy Spirit. You want to hear God speak? Go to the word of God and pray and say, Holy Spirit, teach me. Word of God, speak. Within that. Now, are there other ways that God will speak? For sure. God will give words of wisdom, words of knowledge, spiritual discernment. We're working on Sunday nights in next gen experiencing God. And, and one of the things that's happened as a result of this study is people are becoming aware of what I call them as nudges. God's giving nudges to people to do things, to move. 
And they're learning to hear the voice of God through these nudges. Why? Because we're learning that God speaks, but He also speaks through circumstances and giving us these nudges and directing us within that. And we're checking it against the Word of God. God speaks in a way that everyone can understand. So if God's always speaking, and He speaks in a way that everybody can understand, why doesn't everybody listen? They don't have their spiritual hearing aids. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If you want to hear God speak, first thing you've got to do is you've got to confess your sin. You've got to go to God and say, God, purify my heart. Search me, Holy Spirit, and know me. See what's in me. Cleanse me of every wicked way and every wicked thought so that I might hear you. When you pray, do you listen for the answer? Do you actually pray and wait and be silent? Or do you blab it and then head out the door? We're told to be still and know God. To pray and to wait for that answer within that. We need an interpreter and that's the Holy Spirit that does that. So if we have the word, what's another way that God has spoken? We have the word and who these Hebrews, who should they have listened to that was speaking in their time? It would have been Jesus. You know, Jesus is the best interpreter of God. He does a really good job at it. He, he, he is the best interpreter and he actually completes the communication. John 1, 14. And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Old Testament was prophets. It was, it was the law. It was all of these things. That was the word of God. Now the word becomes flesh incarnate. It's Jesus that walks the earth. That walks among us to be able to see them. And they, these guys were as close as they could be to the presence of Jesus that was there some 30 years off. And the testimonies that were there. And God made his revelation through Jesus. There's a lot of people who say, you know, I want to know all about God. You want to know about God? What's the best way to know about God? Study Jesus. Study Jesus. If you want to know everything that you can know possible about God, that as God would reveal himself, he's revealed himself through Jesus and everything that's there. What has he revealed? His compassion, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his judgment, his wisdom. All of these things, everything. Why? Because the text says that Jesus is the exact replication. It's interesting, that word that's used there, it's a word that's used for minting coins. They would take the face of the emperor and they would press it onto the metal of the coin. And then that coin would represent the emperor at that time. If you remember, when they challenged Jesus, you know, about paying his taxes and said, well, should you pay taxes? He said, well, give me the coins. Well, whose image on it? Well, Well, give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Give unto God what is God. Well, you think about that. 
Well, the money, yeah, you give it, you give it to Caesar because it's got his picture on it. But Jesus is the exact representation of God. You have been created in the image of God. So we should be the exact representation of God in the Imago Dei. He would talk to Philip. Philip says, I want to, I want to see God. I want to see the Father. Philip, and John 14, 9-10 says this, Have I been so long with you that you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, you do not speak of my, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. So many people are coming up so short in faith because they're not looking at Jesus. They look at, at, at the latest podcast or the latest influencer or Facebook or all of these other stupid things. You really want to know how to live your life and, and, and who to follow? Follow Jesus within this. Why? Because as he goes on, he has authority over all things. Notice, he is not only in verse 2 the heir of all things, but he has the authority of all things, having the exact representation that everything is there. He upholds everything by the word and his power within this. Philippians two ten to 11 says this, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone, everyone is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. You mean unbelievers are going to confess that? Yep, on Judgment Day. Can you imagine being that person that, that was made aware of who Jesus is, made aware of their sins, made aware that there's a sacrifice for your sin, that if you confess your sin, that, that Jesus will forgive because he died on the cross for those sins, made aware of all of that, and then you have to stand before or kneel before this Jesus that you rejected on earth, and you're going to go, wow, did I screw up. Why? God is trying to communicate His love to us, to speak to us within this, to give us Jesus, the, the exact representation. I got to thinking about this. Adam was created in God's image, was he not? We call it Imago Dei. He formed him out of the dirt. Jesus and Adam screwed up. Jesus came in human flesh, and is the exact representation of the Father and over all things in a, in a more significant way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by Him, note, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him, note, and for Him. We have to push back, and there is even heresy at this time of this idea that we have God, and then we have the Father, and then we have the Son, and the Son is not God, or Son is less than the Father. Is that a truth or a lie? It's a lie. Jesus is the Creator. He is God. And, and within this, all things are held, and all things were created for Him. Philo says this of Jesus, and, and I would agree with him. 
Jesus is the one sustaining the movement and the development of the world. Not the manager of world events, but one that keeps everything moving forward and not coming apart. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is, is not managing the world. He's moving everything forward. Now, if that is true, and it is, and He's the Creator and the Sustainer and holds all things together, He is moving it towards what? Towards the day of judgment, towards the day of redemption, towards the promise being fulfilled. Now, if He is sovereign over all, and He is, then what happens in Israel, or what happens in Ukraine, or what happens in Washington, guess what? Doesn't matter. Ultimately, why? Jesus is in control. Which allows us to have that complete faith. To those that are being persecuted, we can trust in Him within this. Is it going to be hard? Yes. But it's not out of control. We can be at rest. He is the one that is is keeping everything together. And we, we know this by faith. And if He's the one that created everything... He's the one that sustains everything. Take a breath. And say thank you God. For sustaining the perfect amount of oxygen in the air that allows you to have life. Everything. Planets. Everything. It's amazing. We just have to pause and we have to reflect on that. Jesus is also the perfect priest. That makes sacrifice. Notice at the end of three, he says this. And when he had made the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the high priest that made the perfect sacrifice. And again, in in the Jewish mindset, it was only the sacrifice of, of bulls and goats that would atone for that sin. And how often would you have to do that? Annually. Every time you sin, for sure, but annually you would have to do that. But here, Jesus is the high priest that makes the perfect sacrifice that finished the work. There is no more atonement necessary. But wait a minute. I'm a Jewish believer that's not trusting in the new covenant promise that Jesus is the Savior, Messiah. I want to revert back to sacrifice all the time. I want to revert back to a form of religion that only said, well, your sins are covered for today until you do it again. Why would you abandon the perfect and return to that which is inadequate? Do people do that all the time? They do. When they turn their back on Jesus. When we abandon the perfect and we return to the inadequate, However you manage your life, or however, whatever fear rules you, or whatever, whatever way that you adapt to your culture, whatever the case may be. The Jewish believers were thinking about going back to their old system. Spurgeon once wrote this. He wrote that the creature without Christ is an empty thing, a lamp without oil, a bone without marrow. Can you imagine? You got a lamp there. It can't produce light. Why? There's no oil in it. What good is the lamp? 
What happens in your bones if you have no marrow? You die. So he opens this up and his first three verses is Jesus is supreme. Now he's going to, in the rest of chapter 1, he's going to take apart why he's better than angels. And he's going to go through systematically and prove that, he's, that he is the best of the priesthood, the best of the angels, and so on. So verses, um, chapter 1, all the way through, in verse 14, it says this, And having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, quote, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, quote, And let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels say, Well, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, quote, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of the kingdom. Quote, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, which is the oil of gladness above your companions. And, quote, you, the Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. And they will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. And you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels did he ever say, quote, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who have inherited salvation? You say, well, why was he picking on the angels? Well, here's the problem. They were not only discrediting Jesus as the Son of God, but they were discrediting Jesus as the messenger of God. In, in the Jewish culture, they believed that angels were messengers of God. And were they? Absolutely. In the Old Testament, that was one of the ways that God communicated, was through the angels. But he would also communicate in a number of different ways. And having established the deity of, of Jesus within this, now he has to establish the earthly ministry. So this is Jesus on high... First and foremost, creator of all things, holds everything together. He's the high priest, the best sacrifice. He's seated in the throne of heaven. Great. What about his ministry on earth? Is it valid? A lot of people, if you talk to them and you say, well, who was Jesus? Well, he was a good teacher. Who was Jesus? He's a nice guy. Who was Jesus? Well, he was a prophet. Even some of the cults will say he was a great prophet. What happens if you discredit the teaching ministry of Jesus on earth? What happens if you discredit that? You're discrediting the Word of God. The representation of God speaking to man within this. And so he, he goes into the earthly ministry and he says to these Jewish believers that he as a messenger is better than any angel that is there. I want you to imagine... If you could. They just passed a law. Due to global warming. And, and, and fear of the earth heating up. We are now going to outlaw all electronic devices and anything with a battery. 
All forms of communication. They use the electronic devices and battery. You can no longer have a cell phone. Now, if there were junior hires or high schoolers in the room, they would really flip out. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I don't care. But can you imagine all form of communication to be revert back to carrier pigeon or the Pony Express? Would that work for you? Some of you are like, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> what happens is, is within this, we wouldn't want to do that because we would say, well, that's the old way. We wouldn't want to go back to the telegraph. And we wouldn't want to go back. Why? Because it was inefficient. It didn't work. It was limited. You know, I, I've got kids in Texas, and I love being able, and, and Eugene, and I love being able to FaceTime them. And I can't imagine some of you guys that were grandparents before FaceTime and all of that. I grew up with my grandparents that, that was away from them. I, you know, you get to talk to them. Couple times you might be able to talk to them on the phone. I get to buzz them, or, or my grandkids will—they'll call Wendy just about every day at lunch when they get home from school, and you know the iPad's going off, and then the dogs are freaking out because they know what's going on, and and she gets to see him face to face. What a blessing that is! Can you imagine all of that going away and saying, "Nope, you got to go back to the old way." As a Jewish believer, why would you abandon the communication of God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and say, no, God, I want you to talk again through angels. I want to, I want to go back to the old ways. And, and it, it, it's ridiculous. Angels were mediators between God and man. But is there a better mediator between God and man now? And his name is what? Jesus, for sure. He's the Son of God. And so these, these angels that were there, Jesus is better than the angels as the Son of God. But for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Well, what does that mean? That means he left heaven and came to earth. Hebrews 2.9 says this, But we do see him who was made for a little while, lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. So here was their argument. And it's much like the Gnostics. He can't be God because he came in and he walked on earth. He can't be God. I'm not going to trust in him. Because he came, he died, and, and he's not here within this. Well, where is he? He's on the throne in heaven. He arose from the dead. He's seated on the throne. Question. Has any angel ever died for the sins of man? And if they could, would an angel's death atone for the sin of mankind? No. Then why would you worship angels? Why would you trust in them? It was a false teaching. How do we know this? Because he covers it in Hebrews 13, 19. It says this, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by the foods through which those that were occupied are not benefited. The Jewish believers were, were believing strange teachings. We have strange teachings today. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, so-and-so died and they've become an angel? 
Have you ever heard that? A lot. Why do we say that? Because it makes us feel better. When you die, you don't become an angel. Angels were created angels. Man is created man. And you don't swap. It doesn't work that way within this. But, but we get into this thing where we get into these false teachings. And there's a lot of really wacky teachings, especially when it comes to angels within this. Angel worship was a thing there. Another reason, you know, that I think that, that Apollos was dealing with is because he tackles angels. Why? Because in Colossae, one of the problems in Colossae was they were worshiping angels. It says this in Colossians 2.18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, and he has seen inflated, he has seen, Inflated without cause and by a flesh and mind. So what was happening in the secular? They were worshiping angels. And, and, and so this writer says, no, you can't do this. Don't go looking for the new truth. Don't go looking for a new word from an angel. Don't go looking for all of these things. There's one mediator between God and man. Who is it? Jesus. Angels served a purpose. But angels, even though Jesus was made a little lower while his ministry was there, still only have one job. So there are seven different arguments that he works through. And you look at it, and in your Bible, if it's indented and it's quoted, and I, I emphasize the quotes, what's the best way to argue with a Jew? Don't. <laughs> if you're going to argue with them, use Old Testament. Use the Old Testament. The very thing they wanted to go back to. So the author uses Old Testament to prove his points within this. His first point. That Jesus is better than angels because he's the Son of God. He's quoting Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Within this. And, and he says this. You are my Son who I have begotten you. He is the Son of God. Within this. Has any angel ever been declared the Son of God? No. Secondly, angels are to worship Jesus within this. Uh, that Jesus worship angels. And he's quoting loosely out of the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32.43 and also Psalm 97.7. Did angels worship Jesus? Yes. When? At the first advent. When they worshiped with the shepherds in the field. Do they worship him still? The answer is what? Yes. Where? In heaven. Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Within this. We see these angels that are worshiping him. Do you ever see Jesus worshiping angels? No. So why would you as a Jewish believer worship angels when Jesus never worshiped them? What would worshiping angels equate to? Idolatry. Idolatry within this. Not only that, the third element is that Jesus had fulfilled the Davidic covenant within this. He had become, and he fulfills that, that promise of God. Fourth, angels have a specific and limited job of judgment. It's interesting in here he talks about those that are ministers of flames of fire. We think of the, the angels that came down and brought 
fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah within us. We see that judgment that is there. Angels can't worship other angels. Although they would, they would try to equate to following after Lucifer, it, it doesn't quite work that way within this. They, and again, they have these jobs. They're ministering angels with, within that. We know in Matthew chapter 4, at Jesus' temptation, at the end of his temptation, what does the text say? And the angels came and ministered to him. They are servants of the Most High. And again, we know that angels never hold that place of authority. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He holds that position. Also, Jesus serves on an eternal throne within this. Do you ever see an angel positioned on a throne? No. Within this. Why would you elevate an angel above Jesus? You wouldn't. But Jesus is the one that holds that position on that throne. Psalms 45, 6 through 8 says this. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, and acacia. Out of ivory palaces and string instruments, you've made me glad. So he's quoting out of Psalm 45 within this. And he's systematically working through and saying, this is why you don't worship angels within this, because Jesus is far above that. In verse 9, it says that he is the anointed king. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness in your companions. Verse 10, again, you're the creator. Verses 11 to 12. That, that you have this, this eternality and you are unchangeable within this. But he closes with the last argument in verse 13, and it's called an inclusio, it's a bracket. Where he once again says, sit at my right hand until I made your enemies a footstool at your feet within this. That's a quote out of Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. There's going to come a time when all creation will bow. Question. If all creation is going to bow to Jesus at the throne of God, and it is declared over and over and over that these angels are subservient, all angels, including Lucifer and fallen angels, yes. Why would you worship an angel? You'd only worship an angel because you wanted to be idolatrous and turn your back on Jesus. Is it dangerous to turn your back on Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. Is it dangerous to turn your back on the new covenant that Jesus instituted? Absolutely. Because angels didn't die on the cross for you. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. This is a reminder of the new covenant that Jesus established to abandon this for some form of religion, some form of secularism. It is really to apostate your faith, to turn away from these things. And it puts you in grave, grave danger within this. 
Jesus is on the throne. But when you turn your back on him, you're dethroning him from the heart. It doesn't change Jesus' status, but it definitely, definitely will have a, a, a detrimental effect on your life. Never turn your back and go back to these, these old ways, these old patterns. Verse 13 serves as this bracket. And, and then 14 is the summary. He says, And all ministering spirits are sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. You know what's interesting? When you, when you study angels, and there's a, there's a great study on angelology, angels are always learning. You say, well, wait a minute. What are they learning? They're always learning about God. Well, how does that happen? Angels are always with God and they're seeing God, but they're watching how God interacts with mankind and they're seeing attributes and characteristics of love, grace, mercy, compassion, and all these things on sinful people because all of these angels that are around God are not sinful. They're not fallen. So when you get to Revelation 4 and you get to Revelation 5 and you see the worship service that happens as we're studying on Wednesday mornings, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. And when a sinner gets saved, the angels rejoice because they're seeing an aspect of God's grace, mercy, and love that is just mind-blowing for them. They're created beings that are learning. Ministering servants. Why would you fall back to these inadequate beings and worship them? You would do so just because it's a form of religion. And that which we have to be careful of. People need to stop substituting relationship with God for religion. God wants to be in relationship. Does God want to speak? Yes. And maybe God spoke to your heart tonight. Maybe there's some things that, that you're hanging on to that's part of old-time religion that's hindering the new Spirit of God and the new growth that God wants to do into your life. Make sure that you're not putting an old-time religion idol on the throne in your heart. And let Jesus hold that place of preeminence and supremacy in your life. Say, yes, Lord. Your way, not my way. Your will, not my will. Next week we're going to pick up and we're going to see the better message as we go through chapters 2, 3, and 4. In a moment we're going to go ahead and, and worship and we're going to have a time of communion. I encourage you to approach this table after some time of prayer, after some time of consideration, ask God to check yourself, check your heart, and honor Him with your total being. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You for this time tonight to be able to study Your Word. Lord, I know that, that each one of us often will be in the danger of idolatry as we seek other things more than You. Lord, so many times it's easy for us to fall back to that which is comfortable. 
that which our flesh likes. That even, even ritual will make us feel good. But God, you're not the God of ritual. You're the God of relationship. You want to walk with us. You want to speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, do that now. As we approach this table, Lord Jesus, you've given it to us as a memorial, a reminder of what you've done to establish that new covenant relationship. The bread representing your body, the cup representing your blood that was shed for us. Lord, may you be honored as we receive these elements as an act of worship for you, Lord Jesus. And may our our hearts bow, may our knees bow before you as we say thank you. This table is open to anyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus. If Jesus is on the throne, please, after you've spent some time, come up and take a piece of bread and, and the cup. Wait till everybody's been served and we'll take it together as one body. God, I thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Everybody's been served. Let's stand before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this communion that you've given to us. God, every time that we come to your table, may it be as fresh as the first time that we have taken that, Lord, may it be as fresh to our hearts to realize that that we're forgiven. To realize that, Lord Jesus, you stood in our place before your Father and were, you were judged. On that cross, you receive the pain, the sorrow, the suffering that comes with a judgment from a holy God. Lord, we, we read about it. We, we can see in words what you went through. But it really doesn't show how bad it was. We'll never know. But to think that you left heaven on your own accord, added to yourself humanity, encountered everything that human life has, good and bad, remained sinless. You were mocked, beaten, humiliated. Marched through the streets, hung on a cross with thieves and robbers, spit upon. And at any time you could have stopped it, but you didn't. So that 
in your flesh, you would experience everything and pay the penalty for everything for the sins of the world. This bread that we have, that you gave to us, is a reminder. And you gave a command, as often as you do this, remember you. We celebrate Christmas, your birth. But Lord Jesus, you were born to die. You were born to die so that you would rise again. To promise that resurrection to us, that in our flesh, that would perish, we would rise again to new life. Powerful. We thank you for this bread and all that it means. We receive it now by faith and honor of you. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread. God, we thank you for this cup as a reminder of the new covenant. Lord Jesus, you said this cup is the new covenant ratified by your blood. And as often as we drink it, we're to remember you. But what do we remember? We remember that though our sins were red as scarlet, because of your blood that washed away all our sins, we're now white as snow. What do we remember? We remember the blood that flowed from your hands, from your feet, from your side, from your brow. And that, that blood was shed, completing the judgment of God. What do we remember? No longer do we have to sacrifice bulls and goats and animals. To atone for sin because, Lord Jesus, you're the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. What do we remember? That you promised to see us again in heaven. That at your supper, you would raise a glass. And all the church body would be gathered together, raise our glass. And say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We thank you for this cup and all that it means. As we receive it, we do so by faith in honor of you and in obedience to what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup. Thank you, Lord. He who was before there was times walked across the pages of time he made every living thing behold him he who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us behold him Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the Roaring Lion, oh, be still and behold Him. 
for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.